Mud Stories, Episode 11. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. This was a bubbling hot sulfur smelling mud pit and I was in up to my nose and literally trying to keep my nose above it while it's still spraying at me and trying to gasp air because my lungs were gone I was done and it went on and on and on and that was my life hi my name is Jackie Watkins your host and you're listening to mud stories a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friends, welcome back to the Mud Stories podcast. Today I'm talking with Carrie O'Toole, who lives in Colorado with her husband Bob and their college-aged children. Carrie loves to bike and camp and play the tuba. And she has her master's degree in counseling and serves as a life coach, coaching individuals and couples struggling in relationships, and she helps them move toward living more healthy lives emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Carrie is the author of a book entitled Relinquished, When Love Means Letting Go, and on this podcast, she so bravely shares her mud story and severe struggle in the process of letting go. In this episode, Carrie shares her personal mud story of their international adoption, her child's resulting reactive attachment disorder, and how the experience almost destroyed her and her family. We discuss reactive attachment disorders, the desperation and hopelessness of depression, anxiety, and insomnia, the stigma that exists with mental health issues, and the pain and suffering involved with losing a child, the process of letting go, and the anguish of such a choice. Wow, this episode encompasses so many issues that are affecting so many, and I just pray that you are deeply encouraged by Carrie's story today. It's a story that is not wrapped up with a pretty red bow on the top, but it is one that God continues to redeem each and every day. Enjoy. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. Thank you, Jackie. Oh, Carrie, I'm so glad you're here. You know, when I found your story online through a mutual friend, I was so moved by all you've been through. And not only by what you've been through and how you've moved through it, but how you're helping not only others to do the same, but through your transparency, you're helping all of us see that healing isn't necessarily an end result, but an ongoing journey. So, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you for being here today. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So take us back. When and where did your mud story begin? How did it look and how did you even recognize that you were in the mud? Well, you know, we, um, our families came about sort of maybe a little bit differently than most. Um, we struggled through some infertility issues and then a miscarriage. And then um, we ended up adopting our oldest son when he was just a newborn. And six months later, found out we were pregnant. So I had Aww. two kids 15 months apart, which was awesome. And then when the kids were about seven and eight years old, they started talking about wanting to have a little brother. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm like, my kids okay. are still talking about that. And I keep telling really? them, nope, my daughter, she's six. And she says, Mommy, I want a baby. I said, Well, we're gonna have to find some families to love on some babies because this <laughs> mommy at 43 is not probably having another baby. Well, I kind of said something similar. I just said, you know, mom and the baby thing don't work so well. And I just <laughs> didn't want to go. And they're like, duh, mom, we're not talking about a baby. We want a brother. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're all, hmm, how did I not think of that? <laughs> Older, ready to play, you know. Oh. So anyway, in our family, that's not so unusual. We had already adopted once, so we kind of thought about it and decided we were going to adopt a little bit older child. And we ended up going to Vietnam to meet our little three-and-a-half-year-old son. And Jackie, boy, when we got there, there were so many red flags and bells and whistles going off. And yet... Hmm. Um, 
you know, we had been, we really felt that this was something God wanted us to do. Well, an international adoption is such a journey, such huh. an investment emotionally and financially. I'm, yes. I've known some people who have done that, and it's it's really a long process. It can be, right? Well, ours actually wasn't too bad. It was about nine months, which I'm thinking, well, that's wow. about a pregnancy. So, yeah. you know, same thing. The one concern that I had, I had heard of something. Now, this was 13 years ago, okay. so this was fairly new. But I had heard of something about attachment. I had heard that there had been, especially from Russian bloc countries, that these these kids would come over and they couldn't attach to their parents and they were doing things like starting fires and killing pets and I mean, all sorts of really crazy things. And I thought, okay, so when we went to the adoption agency, I said, the only concern I really have is attachment issues. And they said, does race matter to you? I said, no, not at all. And they said, oh, then go to Vietnam because they treat those kids just like family. Interesting. Okay. So I'm thinking, okay, so we won't have attachment issues if we go to Vietnam. This is what they're telling us. Well, we got to Vietnam, and I don't know too many families, maybe the Duggars, but other than them, I don't know too many <laughs> families who have like 30 kids in one room with one person there. Yes. That's not a family. You know, and even though these the uh, workers loved these kids, they were neglected, mm. absolutely neglected. Just by sheer lack of availability of adults to be there to love on them, I'm imagining. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one day we were there when the older kids came home from school and we saw them, they would shuffle the older kids into the infant room and they're just running around trying to give babies bottles. And, you know, some of them would get held maybe, but most of them didn't. And that is not prime for attaching and bonding and creating healthy children. No. They were all neglected. And so, you know, we were concerned and there were some really kind of odd behaviors we were noticing and a little bit scary. But at this point, we had already flown over to Vietnam twice and um, paid all the money and our kids believed that this was their their brother. And, you know, he had spent a week with us in the, the hotel and we just really felt like, okay, if God's calling us to do to this, then we can do it. So we came home. Okay. And he was how old? Three and a half, almost four. Yeah. And oh my goodness, life just started. This is where my mud started. And Mm. it started, it it started out kind of slow and, you know, a little bit um, messy, but it just kept getting deeper and thicker and dirtier and more and more muddy. And well, and not all mud puddles look the same. I mean, if you look in nature, you have your little thin, little post-rain, dirty, mucky, watery mud. It might then, be fun to splash in a little here and there. Yeah, and then you have these deep, like, quicksand pits of, yeah. This so was I'm- a bubbling, hot, sulfur-smelling mud mm. pit. <laughs> and I was in up to my nose. Wow. And literally trying to keep my nose above it while it's still spraying at me and trying to gasp air because my lungs were gone. I Mm. was done. And it went on and on and on. And basically, I just remember that every Sunday night, I would look at my calendars to see how many therapy appointments I had, how many doctor's appointments, how many special ed meetings, how many hours I needed to plot out for helping him do the therapy. And... That was my life. Describe to me the manifestations of behavior that you experienced in him. I mean, what what did that look like? And well, this is very common for kids who have been raised in institutions, orphanages, or any really kids who have experienced trauma early in life. It's very common for foster children to have mm. this. Now, the official diagnosis is reactive attachment disorder or RAD, but a lot of kids have varying levels of insecure attachments based on whatever happens in their home. So this can happen with birth children when, let's just say, either mom is sick when the baby is born, so she's not able to care for them, or even the child maybe is in the hospital for a while, so bonding doesn't take place. What happens is the kids don't learn to trust. I see. Or actually they learn not to trust. (laughs) And what they believe is, I have to take care of myself at all costs, and if I allow anybody else in, I literally will die. So I will fight you for control with everything in my being. So anything that's important to mom, 
they're going to do the exact opposite. Okay, guys, it's time wow. to go get on some clothes and get ready for school. They know that I want them to wear clean clothes. So this one will go into the dirty clothes and pull out something filthy to wear. So it's a it's a acting out of a self-protective mechanism. Yes, absolutely. Okay. They will and it it can come out in all different kinds of ways. I'm on several Facebook groups with moms and dads who are dealing with these type of kids and I mean every day I can I could just go down the list of the mm. behaviors but and they vary in terms of severity. I see. Um, one major thing is that they will not look you in the eye because that's too vulnerable. That that requires too much trust. So when I would say it's too intimate, yes, it's too intimate. So I would say, look me in the eye, and he would look right between my eyes or right at my forehead. But you could see he's looking right through you. There is no connection. He'd do it because I told him to do it, but he would never get right into my eyes. That was just too vulnerable. <sighs> Strange little things like we would pull into the driveway after having been gone, and he had been with us for five years at this point. So he's eight and a half, nine years old. And we're carrying groceries in or whatever. And if I got to the door before he did, he'd start screaming, wait, wait, like I was leaving him. Hmm. And the thing is, we were going in the house. We weren't going away, you know. But so, I mean, some of these sound like, well, that's not that big a deal. But smearing poop on the carpet is yeah. kind of a big deal. Well, um, and just the in incessant, <laughs> ongoing, unrelenting. Yes, situation and I'm sure impacting your other kids and your marriage and your oh, community, your friendships, everything. Big time because everything yeah. goes into this child and so the other two end up being neglected and which is absolutely what we did not want to do. But our, we noticed the older kids were starting to isolate more and more. They wouldn't invite friends over because our home was becoming chaotic. How old were your your kids when you brought him home from Vietnam? Seven and eight. Okay. So they were in, um, I think, second and third grade. And um, yeah, over the, you know, at first there was some novelty and it was cute and it was fun, but the language issues became more severe. There were a lot of special ed issues. There was a mm -hmm. lot of therapy issues. Yeah. So you found yourself deep in the mud. What mm -hmm. ended up happening in your own heart and life as a result of just living in this mud day in and day out? desperation and hopelessness. Um, I ended up seeing a psychiatrist because I at one point stopped sleeping for five months. I didn't sleep one minute for five months. Oh, Carrie. I was teaching a Bible study, <laughs> which cracks me up. And after a while, I had to have people pick me up because I couldn't even, I couldn't drive anymore. People were cleaning my house. They were bringing us dinner. Um, it was just crazy. So people in your life could see a marked difference. Oh, you. yeah, I was like incapacitated. And um, my husband said at one point, he had to get used to the fact that he had a wife who was incapacitated. Life changing. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I homeschooled for a while. And um, there were times I could get through a few things, but nighttime would come and I would just lay there. I would be so exhausted. And I was so excited for bed. And I'd lay there and all of a sudden it's one o'clock and I know what time it is. And then it's two and then it's two thirty, and then it's three. And by four o'clock, the panic and anxiety would set in again hmm. because another day was coming and I couldn't do it. And so I saw a psychiatrist. I was on antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds and sleep meds. And I just hated taking those meds. And I remember one day being in church and there was the message was about surrender. And I was like, God, what else do you want me to do? I've, I'm going to counseling. I'm dealing with this. I've given up my career, my life. I've given up everything. What else do you want me to surrender? And I literally heard in my spirit, would you just take the meds? And I mean, I just, it was giving up that perception I thought that being on meds was going to label me mentally ill. It would take me out of ministry forever, and I would be one of those crazy people. Isn't that crazy, the stigma that exists mm -hmm. with mental health issues? Mm -hmm. It really is prevalent. You know, I, Jackie, I have a podcast now that uh, I don't need to talk about, but what I'm one of the things that I'm really trying to do, I've found a whole group of therapists who are going to come on my show, and one of the things that we're going to talk about is that stigma within the church. It's like any any illness below the neck yep. in the church, we can deal with that. Right. But if there's an illness that happens above the neck, 
we just, you know, it's a spiritual thing and you just aren't praying enough. You, and don't, you're not, you don't have faith enough and you aren't surrendering to God enough. <laughs> you didn't memorize, memorize enough verses or right. whatever. And it's like, oh my gosh, what do you think I was doing all night when I was awake? I was praying, I was reading, yeah. I was begging. <laughs> well, and the, the unnecessary guilt and shame that's inflicted on that just drives the isolation all the more, which drives the anxiety and the depression deeper. Absolutely. And it really is something that we do need to be talking about. And I'm so it's part of your story that I'm so thrilled about because you are talking about this and it's not a time to be silent. Well, you know, I had two I had two comments that I'd like to share that people said to me during this time. And I think if, you know, we can all judge, but hear how this impacts somebody. So maybe, maybe you'll know some other way to do this if you have a friend who's struggling. In one, one time I was in a small group and I remember going to the psychiatrist and they told me that, yes, it's stress related, it's anxiety related. And she said, oh, well, good. I'm glad it's nothing physical. <sighs> and I was like, what do you mean? I mean, if it was physical, they could do surgery and maybe I'd be done with it. This is never ending. I mean, it was such a blow to me to have her say that, like she just discounted it because it's emotional it's not that big a deal. And yet on that one, don't you think sometimes people say the craziest things? I know. And I'd really like to hope and believe that they're well-intented, just perhaps maybe ignorant right. of really the scope of the struggle. And that's one thing that mud stories in our lives do for us. I think they give us more compassion for others who are in mud because yeah, it's, it's absolutely. just their ignorance to not know what to say. Maybe they get nervous or uncomfortable or feel like they have to try to fix something for you. Yeah. Maybe they haven't been through a mud place before, you know, right. maybe they really truly do not understand. The other one that hit me pretty severely was if you would listen to God during the day, he wouldn't have to keep you up at night. Oh, Carrie, I'm so sorry. And I remember one time hearing a, a sermon on taking in the least of these. And I, I remember thinking, what happens when we take in the least of these and then we become the least of these? Oh, wow. And that does happen so much. Yeah. Because when we do serve the least of these, there are some crazy messy issues that we yeah. encounter. And yeah. it's really God's strength that is what will help us through serving the least of these. Right. Well, and you know, Jackie, I did not handle things. Maybe it looks on the other side. Wow, you were so strong and brave and you made it or whatever. But I remember when I was going through it, I was talking to my counselor and I was crying one day and I said, I don't even suffer well. <laughs> and she, she said, um, do you know the meaning of the word suffer? Mm. <laughs> you know, nobody suffers well. Some people may look like they do, but no, it's ugly. It's, it's you know, gut-wrenching crying that you can't control. It's not wanting to get out of bed. It's not knowing what you're going to do. It's feeling like your entire family is falling apart and you have no clue. That's what mud is. And it reminds me when you talked about suffering, the meaning of suffering, you know, James 1 is a classic passage that talks about persevering under trial, but that original word, it actually means to remain under. And it's not, it's not about overcoming something. It's about surrendering to remain under the pressure so that God can do a work in us, through mm -hmm. us, to us and for us of refining us in ways that he's going to use later. And, you know, just like a piece of coal ends up being under pressure and forms into that beautiful diamond without the pressure, it would never become mm. the potential that it's meant to be. And it reminds me of considering what suffering means, you know, there it is. And there you are living it with not very helpful comments from, from others. Well, you know, I did have one, I did have one friend who was super helpful to me. And when I was in the middle of the five months of not sleeping, I kept trying to figure it out and figure out how to get out of it because it felt like I was going to die. I mean, I, I really got to the point where I, I would have rather died. And I believed that you can't live for too long without sleep. So I'm going to die. But I remember a friend said to me, if you can get to the place where you'd be okay, knowing that you are never going to sleep again, 
and just give that up, then I think you'll be all right. And so, you know, four and a half months in or something, I'm like, well, I'm still alive. You know, I don't know how, how that's happening, but I'm still alive. So, okay, I, I'm not enjoying life too much, but every once in a while we have some hilarious moment because of mom's, you know, crazy brain that's hardly functioning. And I make some really outlandish joke that cracks the whole family up, you know, and they pour <laughs> me into the car to go get some lunch sometime. And, and I say something just really ridiculously funny and everybody cracks up and it's like, okay, I I'm still here. I'm not getting much done. And that was a really, it was really a challenge for me to just realize that I had value in the fact that people were serving me and having to, you know, take Mm -hmm. me everywhere and do everything for me. I really couldn't function much, but realizing that I, I still had value and that every once in a while I could even make somebody crack up. But when I, when I finally got to that place, okay, if I never sleep again, okay. And that was your surrender. That was one of the hundreds. Yeah. Yes. So after that surrender, Carrie, what looked like those months of no sleep and just such deep mud, how did you begin to find your way out or at least begin to move the level from your nose down to maybe your neck or your chest? What did that begin to look like? Well, you know what? When the sleep resolved, life didn't get better. Um, I was on meds. We finally found some meds. I basically slept for about a week. (laughs) And so I found some medication that helped me at least sleep every other night. Um, But it did not get better. And that's the thing, you know, everybody wants life to get better for you. And it's hard to be around somebody whose suffering just keeps going and going and going and going. So we're probably four years in. Well, at about seven years, I was desperate And this is after our adoption. Seven years in after this adoption, I was desperate. Okay, so he's like 11, 12. 10 about this time. 10, okay. About 10. And so we we took a couple of trips that were pivotal. Um, In in the first one, we we went to Yellowstone camping as a family. And in the middle of the trip, he stood up in the middle of our camper and screamed, I don't fit in this family. Hmm. and he had said this type of thing many, many times, and we always would reassure him, you know, we are his forever family, we love him, we know it's hard, you know, but we're going to keep trying. But for some reason, when he said it this time, I just felt like he understands something that we're all fighting. He gets it. Hmm. He doesn't fit in this family, and we're trying to make him fit in this family, and he doesn't, and he knows it. And we've tried, but he has all these different things that we can't help him with. He's so wounded. He's so traumatized, and we still have some of our own stuff. So we're triggering him back, and he's getting more traumatized. Like, he'd get very anxious and then uh, respond to me out of anxiety, which would then spike my anxiety. And so I'm not responding to him in a calm way to keep him calm. I'm, I'm re-triggering him. Wow. So it was like an aha moment for you, like a new perspective that you, you saw. Yeah, and it was scary. And it was not something I had ever thought about. And a couple other things happened. Um, I wanted to find a support group for other moms who were dealing with this. And I only had two criteria. Well, I think I had one criteria. The criteria was you're going to parent this child no matter what. So I found two friends. One said she would join. The other one adopted from the same orphanage that we had. And I knew her. I knew her daughter from when we had been over to Vietnam. And she said, I'm sorry, I'd love to join the group, but I can't join because of your stipulation. And I mean, it, it stunned me. I was like, what are you talking about? She said, well, our daughter has actually attempted to kill one of our other children. And we are seeking another family for her. Wow. And I mean, I just, it shook me to my core because that was not something you talked about, not something you even thought about, not something you did. So anyway, we had him um, placed in a psych hospital for 
17 days of day treatment. So he'd come home in the evening, but he had to go back every day and they were trying different meds and trying behavioral things and trying everything that you could imagine. Like an outpatient kind of situation. Yeah. yeah. And it was Mm -hmm. kind of a last resort. Like we have got to get something figured out here because our family is dying. Um, My marriage was, I mean, I don't know how thin of a string you can hold on by, but it was, it was very thin, you know, spider web thin. And um, our other kids were just disappearing before our eyes and and a friend said to me you know that if you don't get something taken care of here you're going to lose them don't you Hmm. so um anyway devastating yeah yeah so 2009 um right before school started again I was crying myself to sleep again and I said to my husband you're going to be a single dad and he said what do you mean and I said I'm not going to make it I'm going to die. Hmm. I'm just, I'm just dwindling down to nothing. There's nothing left of me. I have nothing left. If something major doesn't change, I'm just not going to be here and you're going to be raising them by yourself. Wow. And, um, he heard me and I think it was really the first time he had heard me. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, the next day we walked into a a consignment store that a friend of mine owned. And this was kind of funny because um, we had actually coached them through a, an adoption three years prior, but she, she had to pull out because she was pregnant with twins. So they didn't end up adopting. At this point, they had four little boys, nine years old, four years old, and twins that were a year and a half. So we walk into her store and she says, hey, guess, hey, guess what? I said, what? She said, we're getting ready to adopt. I said, you are? Are you going to get your little girl? That was always the thing she was saying. She said, no, it's God has made it very clear. It's a boy. He's local and he's older. Hmm. And my husband and I just looked at each other and she winked at me and said, you got one you want to wrap up? Wow. <sighs> chills. Chills, Carrie. Wow. And I just started sobbing. I just... I could not believe what she was saying. I mean, it was the night before I had said, I can't do this anymore. And I didn't know what it meant. I just needed help. And I had been seeking respite and all all kinds of things and could not find anything. And here she is saying they're going to adopt. And he, you know, looking at me. So then what what happened? Well, they ended up taking him the next day just to go play and give us some stress relief. And then they took him a couple of weekends in a row, like from Friday right after school until Sunday at bedtime. What we were trying to do was get my nerves calmed down because I was just having anxiety up the wazoo. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't, you know, he would leave, but he was back before my nerves had a chance to calm down. And I was so anxious and having panic attacks and all kinds of things. And so hard. So I was sitting with my counselor one day and we had talked about this and she knew where I was at. And she said to me, I need you to stop worrying about what your family's going to think, what your church is going to think, what your friends are going to think. And she said, I just want you to tell me, what do you want? And I sobbed for 45 minutes solid before I could finally say, I want them to adopt him. Wow. And she said, okay. So if you or if anybody else has put you on a pedestal, get off fast. Get de- Here's what she said. And this is funny that you call this mud story. She said, get down in the dirt. Get as far down on your face as you can possibly get. Get humble because you're going to get it. Hmm. But what I recognized was if I climbed off my pedestal and I just admitted everything, then there was nothing to knock out from under me. I was already flat on the ground and there was nowhere else to fall. And that actually was a very reassuring place for me to be. And I would talk to God and he would say, there's nowhere else for you to go. You're down. It's okay. You can't fall any farther. I got you. It's okay. I love that. And even the word humility um, in homeschooling this year, we were learning um, Latin roots and that root humus. I could Mm -hmm. be saying it wrong, but. It means actually in its core, earth or ground. Mm. And mm. that's such a beautiful picture to me and how her advice was to just get low, get really mm-hmm. low. And low just and solid. <laughs> you, and, you and God lay low to that earth and with him and being low, you can make it. Mm-hmm. 
Love that. And and it didn't happen quickly or easily. He he ended up staying with their family several weekends, and we didn't really even know what was going to happen there. We thought maybe it would turn into several months of respite, and then we'd be okay. But so it was like continually unfolding, like there, yes. you needed to walk yes. the journey to see how it was going to work out. Yes, we we didn't have a plan. And my friend would tell me that when he was staying there a couple of times, she heard little conversations between him and her oldest son where they were talking about when he was going to move in because they wanted to be brothers. Oh. And hey, when do you think you're going to get to move in with us? We'd be great as a family. Don't you want to be brothers? Yeah, yeah, that'd be so cool, dude. You know, and they'd sit and talk, and he'd do great over there, and then he'd come home, and his behaviors would spike even more at home. And so I was coming to this realization that for my son to be able to make it in this world, he would need to do it without me. Oh, that's so hard, Carrie. And that was a pretty thick thing to think, but... Um, you know, he had been, after he had been there for a while and we still weren't quite sure what was happening, but he had been staying with them for a while. I heard him on the phone talking with my husband one time and he always had very poor, um, English skills when he was with us. He was very hard to understand, still spoke in broken English after 11 years, um, or eight years with us anyway. And I was listening to my husband talk to him and he was speaking in complete sentences in this great English And I just looked at him and I said, ask him if he wants to talk to me. And I could hear my son on the phone going, uh, um, uh, uh. And I looked at him and I said, never mind. Tell him Mm. it's okay. It's okay. And that was the moment I realized I can't be a part of his life. You knew. For his best benefit. Yeah. And here's what psychology would say or what counseling would say. For attachment disordered kids... Love and nurture is terrifying to them. And so the one who gets the closest to them, they will do anything in their power to destroy. That was you. I was the nurturing enemy. I was the one he had to take out. Hmm. But because he was able to have that experience, did that mean that then that released him to finally bond elsewhere? Well... Not maybe in the traditional sense. Um, I think when he gets old enough, my hope and prayer is that he will decide to do some work on himself and figure out why he has such a hard time trusting and, and go into some type of therapy that's very experiential that deals with trauma and emotions and things like that to where he actually can enter a true intimate relationship. But right now, he's more in a relationship at their home where it's kind of what they would call goods and services. <laughs> you do this for us and we'll do that for you. And and he's he's making it okay it, not to say, once again, you know, a lot of people want this story to have just a pretty happy ending. His, his trauma went with him. Yes. You know, the, the new family didn't just take away all the trauma, but he did feel less anxious because they weren't pushing for an emotional type of relationship. So it looked different. It was structured different. And so he yeah. was able to respond differently there. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, the other thing is he was youngest in our family. He loves being oldest. He always wanted the control and to tell everybody what to do. And he couldn't do that in our family. I see. And over there he could. Another really interesting thing. So when he moved in with them, The twins were only a year and a half old, and his new dad is a pilot, so he would be gone sometimes four nights in a row. His mom would say, hey, buddy, come on over here, and she'd set him up in a rocking chair with a baby, and she'd say, I need you to hold and and rock your brother. He never got held and rocked when Mm -hmm. he was in the orphanage, and so something was kind of healing for him to be able to hold his own little brother and, and feed him. And when he never got to crawl on the floor because he was stuck in a crib till he was two, but they were learning how to crawl. So he'd get down on the floor and crawl with him, with his brothers. Oh, that's beautiful. So he was getting these things in, in a different order, <laughs> but he never could have gotten that with us. Right. So as he made the transition, what did life look like? What kind of response did you get, number one, from others, but from obviously the family that he went to be with sounds like they were just the perfect nurturing fit that they were looking for, that he needed. And so talk about how the comfort of that 
helped with the naysayers, so to speak, that you encountered? Yeah, we encountered naysayers. Um, We lost our church. We lost our small group. Um, We lost most of our extended family. Um, Was that primarily related out of a judgmental attitude? Yes. Of what you should have done or failed to do? You know, for the benefit of my family, we did send out an email. We were not on great terms with our family anyway. There are some other things that had gone on. But we sent out an email and just said, please don't ask us questions right now. We are grieving. We just can't deal with it. And we didn't revoke that. So they stayed away for okay. years. And But then when we did start talking again, it you know, one or two have come to us here and there and said, you know, yeah, there is a huge judgmental state. Um, one uncle told me, he had a brother whose son committed suicide. And when, when this son died, the whole family gathered around and nobody said to this family, well, did you get him in counseling? Did you do this? Did you do that? Nobody mm. judged them. They all just said, you know what? You lost your son and that's all that matters. Yeah. But when we lost our son, there was not one bit of recognition. We had no funeral. We had no cards. We had nothing. I was actually leading a, 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 not a Bible study, but a growth group through my church at the time. And I actually bought a card for myself and asked these women if they would sign it. I bought myself a sympathy Mm. card. I said, I know it's the only one I'm going to get. And it's very meaningful to me. Would you tell me that you understand my loss Mm. and that it's real because I need that? And they did. They were wonderful. Oh, Carrie, it makes me think of people maybe who are listening today who have hidden losses that no one sees, that they feel unseen. They feel like their loss is so profoundly deep, and yet no one sees them. That that must be such a difficult place to endure. It is. It's, it's very lonely. I found myself hiding for about six months or six weeks, I'm sorry, where I wouldn't go to the grocery store. I actually had to have a hysterectomy and the doctor told me I needed to stay off my feet for six weeks. And I was so thankful. I'm like, yes, I have a reason. A reason. Now. Yeah. I don't have, and it's acceptable. Nobody's going to question me for having a hysterectomy and wanting to stay out. So I was thrilled to have, I mean, that sounds so crazy, but it was just such a relief to know I didn't have to go anywhere or do anything. And, um, but I gradually started coming out of it and I started, I, I had to end several friendships and just kind of ignored others. And I had to seek out people who understood and I needed some more counseling and, um, my marriage almost fell apart. Uh, we separated for a while. And the thing is, anybody who's lost a child, they say the divorce rate is just enormous. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. It, it's a very difficult thing when you're grieving on different levels and at different time periods and um, at, see things differently. And it, it's a very, very difficult time. But um, Well, and sometimes I've experienced that people have almost a harder time with a loss that's not an actual physical death because there's a whole nother component, like you said, of a lack of recognition of what that loss is, but also an assumption of others that it shouldn't hurt as badly. Well, we made the choice. And so people looked at us like, oh, you must be thrilled. Didn't you Mm. get what you wanted? Mm. No, I felt like my arm had been cut off and I was supposed to go along and live my life as if nothing had happened. And um, yes, it was our decision, but it didn't feel like it was a choice. It, it was a sacrificial love that you were giving him to a place where he would be optimally, you know, nurtured and right, cared right. for in, a, in the framework that he needed. Well, and the recovery process for me included going back to school. I ended up getting my master's in counseling. And every paper that I did, I, I wrote about trauma and attachment. So now I can help others who are struggling through that. I got my life coaching certificate. So I'm a board certified Christian life coach. I started Curio Tool Ministries to help other people. I'm doing my own podcast. And just this spring, I published a book called Relinquished When Love Means Letting Go. And it's it's my story. But I'm hoping, you know, Shannon, Shannon Etheridge actually coached me through that whole process. And she said, you know, yes, it's a memoir, but it's a memoir with a mission that kind of talks about how important attachment is, how important relationship styles are, how important learning to trust and gaining empathy and understanding that there are consequences for what we do and developing a conscience is. Because a lot of these kids that were grown up, that were raised 
through some type of trauma, if the trauma isn't a, um, addressed through some type of intensive therapy, these kids grow up. Let me tell you, whenever there's a school shooting, whenever I live in Colorado, so I've lived through Columbine, I've lived through the Aurora school shoot or the Aurora theater shooting, which is 10 minutes mm. from my house. Mm -hmm. And whenever those type of things happen, these are the parents who are concerned. Now, my son never did any violent things. His were much more covert. It was more manipulative and kind of mind games. And I ended up feeling crazy like I, yeah. it, that type of thing. But a lot of these kids, they are violent. They've been offended sexually, so they become predators. Mm -hmm. They have been hurt physically, so they become predators. These are the kids that end up doing this. I remember asking a counselor, what happens when people don't attach and this counselor said, they end up in prison, on the street, or dead. The prison system is filled with unattached people. And so we can have all of the gun debates in the world, you know, and I'm, yes. I don't care which side you come down on because it, that's not even the issue. Right. The issue is what do we do with people who don't ever learn to trust? And I mean, think about that. If you can't trust people, how can you possibly trust a God that you can't see? Yes. So when we're sitting in church and the message is just surrender and trust God, and yet you have an attachment issue, you're asking the impossible. It's such a need for so many people that we become more aware of this. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful way God has chosen to use your story that you've faithfully chosen to, you know, not only do the counseling that has helped you personally, but that you've become um, schooled and trained to be able to walk alongside of other people through counseling or life coaching, or even through the words that you've been faithful to write in your book. Um, I think the way God's done that is a gift to the world. Well, he, he's a redeeming God. <laughs> He's a redeeming God. And in, in each one of my uh, books, if, if anybody buys one and they want me to sign it, I always sign Joel 225, which is he will re restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Mm -hmm. And I believe that because, you know, God can bring this full circle. He is restoring my family. He is restoring my marriage. And I believe one day he will restore my son and even some way back into our family whatever that looks like. I believe it too, Carrie. I really do. So today, what would you be able to tell us about what your family life looks like, how your kids are doing, um, your son who's with his new family, how he's doing, just a little update, and then any areas that are that God's still working on redeeming in your life? Well, I would say, so we're actually going back to Yellowstone as a redemptive trip Tomorrow, we're Aww. going with our kids and, and my daughter, her boyfriend is coming as well. And um, we've joked, we want to go back to all the places that were kind of ruined and redo them. Mm. And we're doing a do-over. And I'm taking, <laughs> I'm taking goofy, I have a bag of all these goofy, stupid little things that I bought, just Play-Doh and bubbles and Aww. things like that that I can pass out along the trip to make it fun. <laughs> little buddies to go with them and Legos and stuff like that. <laughs> so just goofy little things, but we're going to, we're going to go and have fun. And my kids are doing well. My son works for me in my ministry. He does all of my filming podcasts. He does all the sound. He's got great camera equipment. We're actually talking about doing a um, documentary together to talk about attachment and adoption and how important these issues are. Uh, my daughter is starting in the fall. She'll be a senior at the University of Denver Lamont School of Music. She's um, a French horn player and doing very well. Very excited about that. Um, I love the French horn. Well, I was a tuba player, so she <laughs> followed me into the music, but she picked a much gentler <laughs> instrument than I did. Um, my husband and I are, let me, I want to say that we are both suffering from what they call secondary PTSD. Okay. For those people who don't know what that means, tell us what it means. Post-traumatic stress disorder, very similar to soldiers when they come home from the war and they end up here in a, a car backfire and they their heart races and they feel like they have to hide for their lives. Um, people, Parents who have parented traumatized children get traumatized themselves. 
So once in a while within our marriage, one or the other of us, and hopefully not both at the same time, because then it's really difficult, but we get triggered. And it's like my brain shuts off and my heart rate starts going and I just need him to hold me and, and keep me safe. And we're just still learning how to do that. So we're in counseling still with a trauma specialist helping us to recover. So there we go. Um, our son is, you know, we, we're not in in constant contact with his new family. Um, we get updates probably once a year. It's five years now. And the trauma didn't go away when he moved. Um, that would have been so nice. I wish we could say it's just, you know, a happy little box with a nice tidy bow on the top, but um, it's not. Uh, but they're 10 years younger than we are. They're a okay. younger family with a lot of energy. And so they have a lot of family support. They had it going in. So they do a lot of trading off. They'll take certain kids here and leave that one there. And they'll take others here. So they all get special time. And they have very involved grandparents on both sides. And, um, you know, they're doing the best that they can. And Wonderful. he still has struggles. But God is a redeeming God. And I believe ultimately we are going to see something out okay. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Carrie, it's been such a joy to talk to you today. An encouragement that I'm hoping will meet the hearts of people who can resonate with the facts of your story, because I think there are many, many parents out there who are dealing with this reactive attachment disorder, either through adoption or through foster care or other, you know, even community work that we do. Mm -hmm. And our friends and family might have be dealing. Yeah, teachers. Yeah. So I think this is an issue that I'm so thankful that you are speaking out of from your experience and your life and giving back to us more knowledge and more information and more tools that we can, um, in learning more, we can be better stewards of caring for these kids and these families because they need support, not judgment. And Absolutely. They, need, they need acceptance and not rejection. That's my message. Thank yeah. you for letting me share it. Um, I'd love to just say too, you can find I, any of my yes, podcasts. Where can we find you? Please well, tell us. So my website is carryotool.com. Okay. Um, my book is available there. It's called Relinquished When Love Means Letting Go. It's also on Amazon. And you can find me on YouTube at Carryotool Ministries. Got 30 some videos and a couple yes. of short films my son and I have done and find um, Facebook Carrie Tool Ministries go there as well and your your podcast is actually a video podcast so yes ours is a video so it's on YouTube super Absolutely. fun yeah great well yes check Carrie out and follow her links and her tools she has a lot of encouraging advice and yet is real and raw and transparent at times you're just just fine with saying, you know what, guys, I am not okay today. It's one of those hard <laughs> days. And, and I think, you know, I've appreciated so much reading those words of yours, because some days we're not okay. And yet, in him, we, we can rest in knowing that he is God, and he has a plan, and our mud is not wasted. Absolutely. Ever. So... All right, Carrie. Well, thank you so much for joining me and I hope you have a fantastic day. Well, thank you. I so appreciate it, Jackie, and good luck to you with your podcast. And I hope lots of people get inspired by your mud stories. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. Well, that's all for this episode. Wasn't that just so moving? You know, Carrie's been through so much and she shares with such vulnerability and transparency and she just really longs for anyone who is maybe in a place where she was to know today that there is hope. You can find the show notes and all the links mentioned over at mudstories.com or jackiewatkins.com forward slash episode 11, including the link to Carrie's podcast, her counseling intensives, and her book, Relinquished, When Love Means Letting Go. Again, thank you so much for listening. I know there are so many things you could be doing today, and yet you chose to be here with me listening to this podcast, and I am so very thankful for you. If any of these mud stories have inspired you or brought you some encouragement, I'd sure love if you would share it with a friend, send them maybe a link, let them know, give them a call, 
all for the purpose that they would be encouraged to. And as always, I'd be so grateful if you'd take the time to head over to iTunes, JackieWatkins.com forward slash iTunes, and leave a rating or review as it will help more people to find this podcast so that they can be encouraged too. So today, no matter what we're facing, where we've been, or what lies ahead, may we all find a grateful song to sing. Have a beautiful day. A never-ending marble feels a press upon my mind I pull the shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me my head to see your strong arm reaches to me your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole you wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place Feels a press upon my mind, a pull of shame that leaves me a little bit blind. I cannot see beyond the blame, and I never will find a way out. And then I feel you next to me. You lift my head to see. Your strong arm reaches to me. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me off with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place. You overwhelm my broken thoughts and you mend my lost and damaged heart. I find myself where I belong in your safe a grateful song to sing, a grateful song to sing, a grateful song.